How many of you have been to Rome? Or maybe you want to go to Rome. Back in 2010, my wife Hannah and I took a trip actually over to, to Hungary, but on the way back, we stopped in Rome. And I really had one thing that I wanted to do in Rome. I wanted to go and visit the Sistine Chapel. And so on one day, we got in a taxi, we drove all the way to the Vatican City, and we waited in line for what seemed like forever. And we finally entered into the Grand Papal Palace, and I found one of the guards and asked him, okay, which way to the Sistine Chapel? And he said, it's that way, but it's closed today. I thought, man, you got to be kidding me. You know, we did, we did everything right. And we waited in line. We did everything we were supposed to do. But on that particular day, of all days that we were there, it was closed. There was no access for us. Do not enter. And chances are you've probably had a similar experience in life. Maybe not at the Sistine Chapel, but chances are you've made plans to go somewhere to do something only to discover that it was closed. Maybe you've heard about a restaurant and so you get in your car and you drive to the restaurant only to discover that it's closed on that particular day. Maybe you've been driving down the road only to discover that it's closed for construction and you have to detour and find another path. Maybe in response to last week's sermon, you went to North Park Mall to buy a new handbag and you discovered that the store was closed. But it's frustrating, isn't it? We have our mind, our heart set on something, but there's no access. But I want you to imagine for a second in your mind what it would be like if your access to God was closed. If in your desire to worship the one true God, there was no access. See, for thousands of years, Gentiles like you and like me we really had no access to God. If we had been living in the first century and we had heard about the one true God, the God of Israel, and we desired to worship him, we would have had to first become a proselyte or a convert to Judaism if we want to have access to God. And even then, if you were to go to the temple, there's only one area there in the temple that you were allowed to go, the court of the Gentiles, and you could go no further. In many ways, for Gentiles like you and like me, there was no access. Last week at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2, we saw that God overcame our spiritual deadness. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive together. He raised us and he seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. God took care of the problem of our spiritual deadness. This week... Continuing in Ephesians chapter 2, we see that God takes care of our lack of access. Not only were we dead, but we were also far off and removed from him. So I want you to open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2 as we finish chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians. And there on your outline, you can see we're going to look at Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 in three major sections. First, we're going to see what God has done. He has given us access when formerly there was none. Number two on your outline, we're going to see how God did this. And then number three, we're going to see why 
it matters. So follow along with me as I read for you, looking at number one on your outline, what God has done. Ephesians 2, I'm going to start with verses 11 and 12. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 11, therefore, remember that formerly you The Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world." Paul gives a command here for the believers there in Ephesus, for the Gentiles there in Ephesus. The main command we see here in this entire passage is in that word, remember. Paul is commanding the Gentile believers there in the city of Ephesus to remember. He wants them to remember their former condition so they can have a greater appreciation for their present position. He's telling them to remember their former condition, being cut off, excluded, so they can have a better appreciation for their present position in Christ, so they can have a greater appreciation for the change that has taken place through his son. Paul says, remember, and then he gives a list of several things he wants them to remember. The first thing Paul wants them to remember is this broken relationship that existed between Jew and Gentile. Notice verse 11 again. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Really, verse 11, Paul is highlighting this disunity, this division that existed for thousands of years between Jew and Gentile. Paul says, I want you to remember that. I want you to remember that formerly these two groups of people had nothing to do with one another. Some Jewish men in the mornings, when they got up, they would pray, God, thank you that I was not born a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. Praise be to God, right? (laughs) Praise God that I was not born a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. This just illustrates the disunity, the hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile. They were like the Hatfields and McCoys. They wanted to have nothing to do with one another. Paul says, I want you to remember that. But what Paul really wants them to remember is more than the disunity that existed between Jew and Gentile. Paul really wants them to remember the disunity that existed between them and God. Because notice verse 12, the emphasis of Paul, we see in verse 12. He says, I want you to remember that you were at that time, notice this, five things, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Five things about the broken relationship that Gentiles had with God. Number one, he says, they were separate from Christ. You could translate this as you were without the Messiah. See, the promise of the Messiah was a promise 
that God gave to the nation of Israel, that one day a savior would come, their Messiah would come. But Paul says, listen, you Gentiles were separate. You were without the Messiah. Number two, he says you were excluded from the commonwealth or citizenship of Israel. We know that God has a special relationship with the Jewish people. And God entered into this very special relationship to the Jewish people. But Paul here highlights that, listen, you Gentiles were excluded from citizenship in Israel. You are not in that type of relationship. Number three, the third division he highlights here is that you Gentiles were strangers to the covenants of promise. God in the Old Testament gave several covenants, unconditional promises to the people of Israel, to the Jewish people. Things like a land that they would live in, seed or descendants, and a blessing from God himself. But these covenants, these promises were given to the Jewish people. Paul here highlights that the Gentiles did not have these. The fourth thing Paul highlights here is they were without hope. Notice verse 12, they were without hope. This kind of logically follows from the other ones, right? If you have no Messiah, if you're excluded from Israel and the promises God gave to Israel, that leaves you kind of in a position of having no hope. You have nothing to look forward to, no promises of God to fall back on. And then the fifth division we see here is you're without God in the world. Without God, literally atheists in the world. Atheists in the world. Now, the Gentiles there in Ephesus, they actually worshiped many gods, many of the Greek and Roman gods. And uh, the temple of Artemis was located there in the city of Ephesus. But the one thing they lacked was the worship of the one true God. And so practically speaking, they were without God in the world. But notice again, Paul wants them to remember all of this. Remember the division that existed between Jew and Gentile, but especially remember the division that existed between the Gentiles and God himself. They had no Messiah, no citizenship, no covenants, no hope, no God. Paul says, I want you to remember your former condition so you can better appreciate your present position. In Christ, because notice the next verse, verse 13. But now, having remembered all that was wrong, but now, verse 13, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Having remembered their former condition, now they can look forward to the present position in Christ. Notice, you who were formerly far off, excluded, you Gentiles have now been brought near. Notice the contrast between formerly, but now. Formerly you were cut off, but now you've been brought near. And then notice the phrase, the very important phrase, by the blood of Christ. This new relationship that Gentiles can now have with the one true God is there and only there by the blood of Christ. Again, when you take a step back and just look at these few verses, we see a huge contrast here in the text between the former condition and the present position. 
This is tremendous. To gain maybe a clearer picture of what it would have been like to be a Gentile in those days, I want you to imagine with me for just a minute. I want you to imagine with me that we jump into a time machine and we travel back to the early first century and we're all Gentiles and we've heard about the one true God, the God of Israel, and we want to know more about him. And so we begin the journey traveling a long distance to the city of Jerusalem. We make all sorts of preparations, very expensive preparations for this very long journey. It takes days, perhaps even weeks to get there. But finally, we arrive in the city of peace, the city of Jerusalem. And we see there in the distance the temple and we can hear the praise coming from the worshipers inside. We can't wait to get in there. And after what seems like standing in line forever, we finally enter into the temple complex and we stand there in the one area we're allowed to go, the court of the Gentiles. We're there to worship the one true God. But frustratingly, our prayers and our praise is drowned out by the noise of the money changers and those selling animals for sacrifice. In the Gospels, we know that Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers and this place, this uh, court of the Gentiles, a place that was supposed to be a place of prayer for all the nations became nothing more than a flea market. And so frustrated, we try to distance ourselves from the crowds and those exchanging money and selling animals and we try to come a little bit closer to the temple itself. And there's a wall there. As we try to get closer to the temple, we see a wall that separates Gentiles from the Jews. And there on that very wall is a sign. And I have a replica of the sign. You can come check out after the service if you want to. But there on the wall in the temple, in this wall separating Jew from Gentile, is a sign that says, no Gentile shall enter within this Point, and to do so, you are responsible for your own death. Access denied, right? <laughs> do not enter. Go no further than here. This is not necessarily a real open and inviting scene for worship. That's the bad news. But the good news of what we see here in Ephesians 2 is that God has provided the way for us to access him, to approach him. And how God does this, we see as we look at number two on your outline. Follow with me as I read for you Ephesians 2, verse four, starting in verse 14. For he himself is our peace 
who made both groups, Jew and Gentile, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two, Jew and Gentile, into one new man, the church, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having it put to death the enmity. This is an explanation of how God has provided this access through his son. The big statement I want you to see is there in verse 14. For he himself, that is Christ, is our peace. Formerly, there was hostility. There was division. There was no access But now, Paul says, he himself, Jesus, is our peace. We have peace with God, most importantly, but we also have peace with one another, Jew and Gentile. Dr. Honer, who attended here at Grace, taught at Dallas Seminary, and by the way, who I am plagiarizing in this entire sermon and heavily relied upon him. He says this, and it's very important. He says, this passage clearly indicates that the hostility between Jews and Gentiles could not be reconciled by human ingenuity, but was accomplished in Christ. Let me read that again. This passage clearly indicates that the hostility between Jews and Gentiles could not be reconciled by human ingenuity, but was accomplished only in Christ. The reason this is important is because very clearly we live in a divided world today, right? Uh, Clearly, we still live in a world where there is a lot of division. But the fundamental thing we have to see here is that the only chance of actual peace is only through the peace that Jesus will ultimately bring. I see a lot of people trying to fix spiritual problems with human solutions, and they are never going to work. They're never going to work. The only chance of peace that this world will ever see is found only in the peace that Jesus will one day bring. But notice, I want you to see that peace is, in fact, possible. Notice verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups, Jew and Gentile, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. He broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. There's a ton of debate in commentary after commentary after commentary over exactly what this dividing wall is. Uh, Now, some think Paul is referencing the the sign, the wall that I mentioned to you earlier, this wall that divided Jew from Gentile in the temple. Now, the question is, how many of the Gentiles there in Ephesus would have known that this wall even existed? Now, Paul would have known, but did the Gentiles there know? We don't know. At the very least, Paul is referencing a metaphorical wall, the division that existed between Jew and Gentile. But notice Jesus abolished it. He took it away. He uh, broke down the barrier of that dividing wall. And he did this, verse 15, by abolishing in his flesh, 
the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Notice that word enmity, division. But it's been replaced four times we see the word peace. The enmity that once existed has now been replaced by the peace that Jesus brings. How is this done? By abolishing in his flesh that enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances. Listen, uh, Paul here, this is really important. Paul is not bashing the Mosaic law. Uh, The Mosaic law was not a mistake from God. God uh, knew exactly what he was doing when he gave the Mosaic law to the Jewish people. But over time, what developed is that the Jewish people began to use the the law as a way to beat up on the Gentiles and to look down upon them. And so in order to take away that division, Jesus rendered inoperative the very law that divided Jew from Gentile. And that's what Paul is saying here. And then notice the purpose, what happens. So that in himself, he might make the two, Jew and Gentile, into one new man, that's the church, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. Notice what takes place here. Jew and Gentile are united to one another, But most importantly, both Jew and Gentile, verse 16, are reconciled to God through the cross. The reconciliation that takes place on the horizontal level between Jew and Gentile, it's most importantly reflected in that both are now reconciled vertically to God through the cross. And then notice verse 17. He came and preached peace to you who are far away, that's the Gentiles, peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Here's kind of where Paul lands the plane in what he's saying. Where Paul really lands the plane in what he is saying. Remember, he's wanting the Gentiles to remember that formerly they had no access, but here notice what has taken place. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Through Jesus, in the spirit, we have access to the Father. Notice that all members of the Trinity are there mentioned. Think about this. Think about the change that has taken place. Formerly, the Gentiles had no access. Cut off, far away. But now in Christ, we, along with believing Jews, have been brought near. The distance that we have come is amazing. From death, wrath, and separation, now to peace and proximity with God. So again, travel back with me, if you will, in your mind for just a minute in our time machine to the first century. We're standing there in the temple in the court of the Gentiles. We're there at the wall that separates Jew from Gentile. And if I can be a little poetic here, what Paul is kind of saying is that God breaks out of the temple. The curtain is torn and access for all Jew and Gentile is now fully open and available. This is truly amazing. 
And notice why this is important, why it matters as we take a look at number three on your outline. Notice the ultimate result of all of this. So then, Paul says, verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. A couple things I want you to see here. There's really three images that Paul uses to describe the so what, why this matters. Three pictures Paul paints here for us to understand just what God has done. The first one is that of citizenship. The second is that of a family. And the third is that of a building. First, the citizenship. Notice again, verse 19. Paul says, so then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Remember, formerly we were cut off. We're excluded. No citizenship. But now in Christ, we've been brought near and we are fellow citizens with the saints. Notice the word fellow there, together. We are citizens with the saints. The second image Paul uses here is that of a household or a family. The end of verse 19, he says, and you are of God's household. Formerly, we were cut off. We had no relationship. But now in Christ, We're part of a family, members of God's household. And finally, number three, the big picture Paul is painting here is that of a temple, of a building. He says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. The third picture Paul uses here is that of collectively together, we are a type of new temple, a building that God is putting together. Notice what he says about this building. First of all, it's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. When you constructed buildings in this day, the cornerstone was the most important building, or the most important stone. It was the stone around which every other stone was aligned. It was the most important stone, and here Paul says that Christ is that cornerstone. Everything must be aligned in conformity with him. But then second, notice Paul says there in verse 21 that the whole building, we're being fitted together and growing into a holy temple in the Lord. See, when you constructed a building, once you put together that cornerstone, you would then choose other stones that would align with that cornerstone. And those other stones had to be perfectly smoothed. There could be really no defect in them. And so the stonemason would have to chisel away and and sand them down. And so they're really perfectly smooth such stones. And similarly, God does the same for us. He's constantly working to smooth out the rough edges in our life so that we're in conformity with him. I love what Dr. Honer says. He says, God, even more by his grace, is carefully fitting together 
the people who are part of his building. And it is his desire to bring unity in order that growth can occur. And then finally, notice verse 22. In whom you also are being built together. Notice the ultimate result into a dwelling of God in the spirit. The goal of God doing all this forming together of this building is so that he might build a dwelling of God in the spirit. You know, in the Old Testament, the presence of God was in the temple or the tabernacle. There in the city of Ephesus was the temple of Artemis where people would go and worship. But here what Paul is telling us in Ephesians 2 is that God is building a new place where his spirit will dwell And it's the church, not the building, but the people. So this is Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. How do we apply it? What do we do with this passage? First and foremost, it comes back to that command we see in verse 11 to remember. Paul wants the believers in Ephesus, he wants you and me to remember our past condition so we can better appreciate our spiritual position, right? He wants us to, again, take a step back, similar to what we did last week, and realize just what it is that God has done. In taking us from a people who were cut off, had no access to God, but now, in this new entity called the church, The doors are open, and anyone, Jew, Gentile, anybody, can come to God through faith in Jesus. This is great news. This is the greatest news. And if you've not trusted in Jesus, if you're not confident that you have open access to God, if you're not confident that your sins have been forgiven, I want to give you the opportunity right where you're seated for those of you watching online to simply trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. It's nothing you do. It's not walking down an aisle. It's not getting baptized. It's simply trusting, believing in Jesus, the one who died and rose again so that you can have access to God. That's the most important thing that I want you to see in this passage. Secondly, though, for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, one of the applications I think we can draw from this passage is a greater appreciation for the church. This new entity that God created in Christ, this entity that brings together hostile groups of people like Jew and Gentile together around the one thing that really matters, the only thing that really matters. I like what A.W. Tozer says about the church. He says, there is a sense in which the people of the Lord are a people belonging to each other in a sense in which they don't belong to anyone else. We are a people belonging to each other in a way that we don't belong to anyone else. In the first service, uh, Rocky Miller came to church this morning wearing an OU shirt. And as an Oklahoma State graduate, I had a really hard time worshiping in the same room as someone from OU. And I know Andy has made a habit of 
highlighting the rivalry between Texas and Texas A&M, and we all kind of wear the emblems of our university, but believe it or not, God can overcome that kind of division, and he can center us together around the one thing that really matters above all other things. But a third application for you this morning, there on your outline, your one thing for this week is this. Listen, if you're not already involved in a community group, I want to ask that you consider joining one. Uh, Out in the commons, you can see Pastor Bob uh, at the community group kiosk for more information. But um, I'm not at all suggesting, by the way, that the only way you can access God is through a community group. Uh, To do so would miss the entire point of this passage. Uh, But a community group is one of the ways that we can practice what it is to be the body of Christ, the church. And if you're not involved in some sort of biblical community, a community group would be a great place to start. So uh, that's Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. And one day, I would love to go back to Rome and perhaps see the Sistine Chapel. I hear that it is a beautiful place. But the truth is, the church is much more beautiful. What God has created in bringing us all together around the one thing that really matters is a beautiful creation indeed. And as the church, as the united body of Christ, we're called here in this passage to remember. To remember our former condition so we can have a greater appreciation for our present position. And I can think of no better way to do that than to take the Lord's Supper together. And so here in just a second, I'm going to pray. And if you haven't received the elements, we'll have some deacons available to distribute those. We're going to take a moment to quietly reflect and prepare ourselves to take the table. And then we'll celebrate what God has done in bringing us together in his son. So let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that although we once had no access, although once we were dead in our trespasses and sins, although once we were far off, thank you, Father, that now in Christ, all of those barriers have been torn down. Thank you that in Christ you have raised us to life. You have raised us up and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. Thank you, Father, that through your Son, by his blood, on the cross, you've brought groups of people together, Jew and Gentile, together for the one thing that really matters, and that is to worship you, Father, Son, and Spirit, with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. Father, help us to remember what you have done. We ask and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.